Mark chapter 11 and verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna! In the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Lord, bless the preaching and the obeying of your word. When I was a, a young boy, one of the movies that I watched with my siblings, my little brothers, was Robin Hood. It was an old version of Robin Hood, and it was one of the movies that my parents thought was okay for us to watch. We watched that one, and if you don't know the story, which if you don't, I don't know why, but if you don't know the story, Robin Hood (laughs) defended England and was loyal to the true king, King Richard. And near the climax of this particular version of the legend, Robin has heard that King Richard has returned, but he doesn't know where he is. And unbeknownst to him, you watching are aware that he has made his way disguised into Robin's own group. So Robin knows that he's returned, but he doesn't know where he is. And he's aware that his enemies, the enemies of the king, will seek to kill him and destroy him. And so he's about to send his men out to search for him. To send them out, go, we have to go find him. We have to keep him safe. And right at that moment, King Richard throws off his disguise and reveals himself. There he is, right among them. And every man of this band of rough and ready outlaws kneels and declares their homage to the king. Now, I, I, I love that moment because these guys, you've seen them be outlaws and rough and tumble kind of guys fighting on bridges with sticks and shooting arrows and stuff. But in that moment, their loyalty to the king is absolutely unquestioned. They pay homage to him. Now, I, I'm afraid that since we live in a democracy where a lot is said about independence and rights and and so forth, and it ought to be, we sometimes lose sight or maybe even have a negative view of the idea of kingship and reverence and submission and homage. We tend to focus on our rights and our independence. 
But as Christians, we actually belong ultimately not to a democracy with voting, but to a kingdom and a king. We actually belong to a kingdom and a king. A king whose identity should cause us to go down on our knees and to pay homage and worshipful reverence to him. Now this passage in Mark marks an entrance into his third and final scene in this gospel. Here the king reveals himself and he invites those who are willing to honor his majesty. And I I pray, brothers and sisters, that that will be the effect on our hearts this morning. That as he reveals himself through this passage, we will kneel, perhaps physically, certainly spiritually, to pay homage to this king. I pray that it will cause us to exalt the true glory of our humble king. That's the goal this morning. The goal is at the end of this study this morning, your heart would be kneeling And I would be exalting the true glory of our humble king. So let's walk through the passage and then I'll seek to apply it as we often do. The passage begins with an emphasis on Jesus' authority. You notice that he is drawing near to Jerusalem. He has already made the point that he is going to Jerusalem to die. He has set his footsteps and his direction resolutely. He will not be deterred. He goes through nearby towns, Bethpage and Bethany, the Mount of Olives, which is nearby to Jerusalem. And as he approaches, he sends two of his disciples with a surprising task into a local village. Go into the village, he says, and you will find a colt a young donkey tied on which no one has ever sat. Now, before we get into the symbolism, which there is some, about this donkey, I I think the passage wants to emphasize Jesus' decisive authority because it gives his directions and then it repeats the story again when they actually go and do it. And anytime the Bible repeats something... You want to notice what it's trying to say. It's doing that on purpose. So he's repeating this, I think, in the first place, just to point out Jesus' authority. Jesus is decisive in this passage. He is conscripting, if we can put it that way, this donkey for his service. Now, as 21st century Americans... Our thoughts naturally go to things like property rights and wondering, is this stealing or borrowing? Is this grand theft donkey? What is is happening right here as they enter this village? But Mark and I think his readers would have a much better sense of what is going on here than, than we do with our warrant searches and so forth. To constrict animals into service is the prerogative of a king. Jesus is assuming that he has the right to make use of this animal. He does not need permission. I think that's the point of the explanation. The Lord has need of it. Now, he's a kind king, so he reassures the owner, I'll, I'll get him back here quickly. But yes, the Lord has need of it. So right away in this passage, we're introduced with a somewhat of a turn in Jesus' disposition. He begins to exercise the prerogatives of a king. His authority and perception is validated when the disciples go into the town and find the situation precisely as Jesus has anticipated, even down to the objection of the owners. 
We're supposed to see, I think, in this, a sovereignty over this whole event. We don't know whether this was a supernatural insight Jesus was given or whether he had planned and declared it ahead of time. We don't know exactly the background here. But what we're supposed to clearly get is Jesus is in charge. He declares what's going to happen. That is what happens, and it proceeds exactly according to his will. That's the clear picture of this opening section in Mark 11. The owners object, what are you doing? Are you seriously going to, <laughs> I have to be honest, some of, some of the word play that came to mind on this, are you going to hijack my donkey? <laughs> uh, can't, we can't go there. <laughs> In broad daylight. But then the answer is sufficient. The Lord has need of it. They let them go. We're supposed to see an authority here. The Lord has need of it. They make no further objection. He is giving hints, I think, Mark is, that Jesus is acting like a king. And actually, there's more at work here than just the decisiveness. There's also some important biblical background as well. Jesus' choice of a cult to ride into Jerusalem is very important because of a prophecy that he is certainly aware of in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. The prophet declared, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Commentator R.T. France makes the point that we have not seen Jesus ride anything throughout his ministry. You never see Jesus on a horse. He is always walking. So his choice at this moment to choose a mount for himself is certainly strategic and intentional, and his choice to ride the foal of a donkey is certainly an, an attempt to draw people's attention to Zechariah 9.9 and to fulfill it as he enters David's city. This is Jesus declaring that he is the king of Zechariah 9.9. This is Jesus inviting people to see him on this donkey and to remember and recognize that the true coming king would ride in on a colt and they ought to see in Jesus that king. But there's something else in this passage that this donkey reveals, that Zechariah draws out, and that is Jesus' humility. His riding on a donkey, on a colt, is evidence that he comes humbly to his city, as Zechariah points out, humble and mounted on a donkey. Those two things go together. You're not arrogant and choosing to ride on a donkey. Those two things don't go. Arrogant warriors do not ride donkeys. They do not. They ride stallions or chariots if they ride at all. His riding on a donkey, on a colt, is evidence that he comes humbly to the city. It's, it's not hard to see why this is the case. A donkey is not a war horse. It cannot run quickly. It is not tall or heavy enough to break through an enemy's defenses. It cannot leap over barriers. A person riding on a donkey is not coming to fight or command military respect. And the colt of a donkey is weaker still. Jesus would not have seemed a warrior at all as he plodded his way on this young donkey's back up the hill toward Jerusalem. Edmund Hebert, the commentator, 
says this, Jesus thus deliberately acted to ride into the city in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. He thus openly presented himself as the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. But the very manner of his entry indicated that he presented himself not, not as the political Messiah they were expecting. The donkey was the animal of peaceful daily pursuits and was not associated with thoughts of conquest as the horse was. He did not present himself as the glorious, irresistible ruler that their messianic expectations had conceived. There is an invitation to see something unexpected here. He has authority. He is in charge. He is a king, but... He will use his authority to submit to biblical prophecies and to come humbly and peacefully into his city. This trajectory will reveal something of the way Jesus will be king. What he came to Jerusalem to do. The scene transitions from Jesus preparations to the people's response as he heads towards the city. His followers, you notice there as you look at your Bibles, they place clothes in verse 7 on the donkey as a kind of makeshift saddle, and then they begin to spread their outer cloaks on the road, and those that cannot do that cut branches. They are, in effect, carpeting the road for him. Now, this is a clear indication of treating Jesus as royalty. Edmund Hebert says this again. They spread their outer robes in the dusty road to carpet the way for him. It was an ancient practice in welcoming a new sovereign. It was an ancient practice in welcoming a new sovereign. Now it's important we understand this connection. Jesus has chosen to mount this donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9 and the people are treating him with the reverence of the king and their expectations are further revealed as they begin to lift their voices and shout before and behind him, proclaiming his way the way the heralds of a king would. Hosanna! A word which literally means save us, we pray. It's a word of praise. Would have been viewed similar to hallelujah. Its technical ancient meaning is save us, we pray. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In the context, in light of the fact they are treating Jesus as a king, they are probably referring to their hope that God is about to save his people in Jesus. That is likely what is on their minds, that God is about to save his people through the coming of Jesus. Blessed, they say is the coming kingdom of our father David. Meaning that they had hopes that in Jesus, the long-awaited arrival of a renewed Israelite kingdom was finally drawing near. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Perhaps, they say, in Jesus, the kingdom has finally come. Perhaps he is the one Hosanna, save us, we pray. Hosanna in the highest, they conclude. Meaning that to the highest heavens may our prayers and our praise resound. You might, you might transliterate that. Hear us, O God, in your highest heaven. 
and bless us in this one who has come to his city. Rejoice. The coming kingdom is finally here. Lay your cloaks before him and lift up your voices in song and in shouting. Lift up your hands and declare, David's son has come to David's city and the kingdom of David has been restored to us. Hosanna, save us, we pray. It is, oh, it's hard to imagine. The anticipation, the joy of that moment. And yet, I think there is something here we might possibly miss. Now, we've read through Mark one section at a time. There is something that we might possibly miss. Notice a difference in Jesus right now than in most of the preceding chapters in Mark. Now, I, I just want to pause for a moment, and I, I want to encourage you to do your own exegesis, okay? I want you to do your own biblical work. What is different about Jesus' response right now to a response that we pointed out again and again and again earlier in Mark? What is different? Earlier, Jesus insisted on people being silent regarding his messianic destiny. Do you, do you remember that? Again, and it was surprising. He would heal somebody. He would say, no, don't tell anybody. He would cast out a demon. He would say, you be quiet. Don't tell them who I am. And he would say, man, what is the deal? Again and again. And yet here, not only is he allowing this kind of chorus of celebration with messianic symbolism taking place, but he's encouraging it by riding a donkey for the first time into Jerusalem. What is different? What is different? Eckhard Schnabel, the commentator, says this, the silence imposed earlier on those whom Jesus healed, on demons, and on his disciples is ending. As Jesus deliberately enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9 with its promise of the coming Israel's king, he signals that his mission is indeed a messianic mission that fulfills God's promises given to Israel. Far from being silent, he's indicating or energizing this. R.T. France says that this amounts to a clear messianic declaration by Jesus. And brothers and sisters, do some work right now in your mind. What is different? Why is Jesus allowing this? The clear difference is that in less than a week, he will be on the cross. In less than a week from this moment, Jesus will be on a cross. Jesus had no desire earlier to escalate his conflict with the Jewish or Roman authorities until his earthly ministry of teaching and healing had come to its appointed end. But now... The hour has come. Now the hour has come. He wasn't embarrassed by his identity earlier. It wasn't some sort of false humility. Oh, shush, shush, don't talk about it. No, no, no. This was a, an issue of timing. When was it going to be right for him to be publicly proclaimed as Messiah? When it was time for him to come into conflict with the authorities on that claim and when the cross could define that claim. That's when the time had come. 
He wasn't embarrassed earlier. He was choosing the moment when the cross and his suffering would define what it meant for him to be king. So rather than silence, he actually encourages it now. He welcomes it because now is the time. Before, the danger was that they would view him as a political messiah seeking earthly power. But now there is an opposite danger because in just a few days he's going to be hanging on a criminal's cross. It's possible they might view him as merely an imposter who was a fraud all these years. So now he wants to make it very clear, no, no, I need you to get both of these things right. The messiah is the one hanging on the cross. The king is the one who will suffer. The one who is suffering is the king. And so rather than silencing the crowd or discouraging their proclamation, he encourages it. He engineers it so that they will know the king who entered Jerusalem is the same one who hung on the tree. And that's exactly what Jesus wants them to think. Now, finally, with the cross looming in his mind and his steps are set toward his enemies and their opposition, he encourages this affirmation of his kingly identity. Now, this outcome of the week is subtly and skillfully included in Mark's abrupt conclusion. Did you notice that in your Bibles? This is easy to to miss for sure. Look Look at verse 11. And notice what Mark does in verse 11. They have been shouting. The crowd, his heralds, are welcoming him into the city. And then Mark just drops verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. Pause. And pretty much nothing happened. He entered Jerusalem. He went into the temple. What happens? And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany, not with the crowd, but with the twelve. Now, this isn't the last time. This is actually how Mark ends his gospel with one of these abrupt, anticlimactic endings. It's not a throwaway verse. It's meant to make a point. The surprise of it is meant to make a point. It's like, really? I mean, people were shouting and Hosanna and David and our kingdom and throwing their cloaks on the ground. And he comes into the temple and you would think there would be a groundswell of support and people cheering and crowds running to him. Yes, this is the son of David. Hosanna, make him king. No, he goes to the temple and what happens? Somehow, the crowds are gone. Nobody in the temple seems to welcome him. No religious leaders seem interested in affirming him. He simply looks around and retreats back to the gate and is gone. Mark Edwards says this very insightfully. Mark's account is noteworthy for what does not happen. The whole scene comes to nothing. Like the seed in the parable of the sower, that receives the word with joy but has no root and lasts but a short time, the crowd disperses as mysteriously as it assembled. Mark is warning against mistaking enthusiasm for faith and popularity for discipleship. Jesus is indeed the Messiah, but he is veiled 
and unrecognized. He says elsewhere, He enters Jerusalem triumphantly, but he is not received in the temple triumphantly. The indifference with which he initially was received quickly turns to opposition and eventually to his condemnation to death. The story invites us to honor the true glory of the humble king, a glory that many residents and leaders in Jerusalem did not see, a glory that was revealed in humility, that did not come in a violent conquering attack, but in an offer of humble peace. And Mark invites us to ask the question with his anticlimactic ending, where is your heart toward this king? Because it is possible even on such a thrilling day that it ends quietly with few people taking notice of the small band leaving Jerusalem back out to Bethany. It is possible that after the shouts of the crowds, people return to their normal lives, showing at least indifference, if not annoyance, if not antagonism towards the coming of Jesus to his city. And I think that's Mark's point. Where is your heart towards this one who ought to be shouted into his city? Where is our heart toward this one who is worthy of a resounding Hosanna, whose humility ought to increase our gratefulness for him, whose offer of peace ought to astound us with appreciation whose glory and prerogatives of kingship ought to humble us, but where is our hearts? Are we joining the chorus, celebrating his arrival? Or are we those who show a level of indifference, like those in the temple, when he comes, looks around, apparently to nobody's significant attention, and then leaves? Jesus came into the temple fulfilling Ezekiel's prophecy and nobody noticed. It's a brilliant ending by Mark. Just as quickly, the noise dies down and we are invited to ask the question, where is our heart toward this king? Where is our heart toward this king? I'm going to ask two or or just make two application points for what it ought to look like when we are honoring the true glory of our humble king. What, What should it look like? How can we press forward in joy and passion rather than in indifference? How can we press forward? How can we make sure we find ourselves on the right side of these shouts? How do we do that? Well, two things I think we need to look for in our lives. We ought to press forward in our lives. First, we honor the king when we lay our lives at his feet. When we lay our lives the way they laid their cloaks in the dust, the way they surrendered that colt, we lay our lives at his feet. Feet. These are good pictures to remind us of his authority. Jesus coming to the city reminds us that he is a king. He is not a president. He is not merely an encourager. 
He is not merely someone who comes to our side and, and comforts us in weakness but has no authority over our life. He is a king with all of the divine rights and prerogatives of the king, the right to command, the right to require, the right to call. He is a kind king, yes, but he is a king. That's what those shouts were anticipating. That's what those garments were revealing, and that's what our lives ought to declare. That he is our king. I am the citizen of a king. I belong to a king. Now, brothers and sisters, this, again, comes against an aspect of our culture we can tend to forget this. Now, there's nothing wrong, and I think there's a lot right in political independence. I think that is a good thing that we ought to vote for because we live in a sinful, fallen world where Jesus isn't on the ballot, okay? Not literally. And, And yet... As Christians, it's sometimes dangerous that we could think more of our political independence in this fallen world than we do of our kingly allegiance in the eternal world. It's good to care about rights. As we heard this morning, there is a danger when governments are oppressive to people, and we ought to work against those things. And yet, in our heart of hearts, we ought to remember, and yet, rights and independence, they aren't absolute They're good temporarily, but in an absolute sense, I am the citizen of a king. He has commands that are not burdensome. They are actually a joy and a blessing to our heart, but we serve under his authority. It's good for us to meditate on these things. I I asked somebody one time, just as a a sort of accountability question, "Do, do you tend to think of Jesus as someone that you ought to love or someone that you ought to obey. And this particular person said, wow, I, I, I definitely tend to think of him as someone I ought to obey, which is my assumption, knowing him well. And I, I tried to point out, you know, it's, it's unhelpful to only think about obedience because part of what it means to obey is that we love him. There is an affection for him. But I think there are others that might overwhelmingly answer that the other way. Well, I, I think of him as someone I ought to love. And it is important for us to remember, no, but he is also someone we are called to obey. If we had been there that day, we ought to have taken off our outer garments and laid them down in the dirt. And we ought to take off whatever our dreams and preferences and desires and interests and lay them down at his feet, our, our time, our finances, our relational taboos, things that we would think, I I could never relate to that person. Well, yes, you can in Jesus' name and obedience to him. Our evangelism, our godliness, our purity, what, what are all those except saying you are the king? And I gladly lay my life down before you. He is a good, gracious, kind king, but he is a king. And this passage invites us to lay our lives at his feet. He is God's appointed ruler of every heart, of every nation, of every moment. And every moment ought to be offered to him in glad submission. That's true of what we do That's true of what we say. That's true of what we type. 
That's true of what we think. Our thoughts ought to be laid at his feet so that what we think and say and type and do is saying, you are my king. We lay our lives at his feet. Second and final application, how do we honor this king? We rejoice at his arrival. We rejoice at his arrival. Listen, the coming of Jesus to Jerusalem in peace and humility was good news, not only for this people, but for the world, which includes you and me. It was good news. This arrival on a donkey in humility was good news because this same humility of arriving on a donkey offering peace instead of judgment was the thing that motivated him to do what he said he would do and go to the cross and pay for our sins. He came in peace to provide peace. He came in peace to suffer for our peace so that in Christ we have peace with God because the Prince of Peace died in our place on the cross. This one that was humble enough to go into the city of David on a donkey was the one humble enough to lay down his life on a cross to die as a criminal. This is what we see in the, the arrival of Jesus on a donkey. We see the same humility that would take him steadfastly out of the city again to the hill called Calvary where he would bear our sins and he would take our place before the judgment of God. And in his humility and his humble salvation, we have a rescue. Brothers and sisters, that is a reason to rejoice. That is a reason to rejoice, not just to affirm, but to rejoice. Did you notice in this passage that they are, I just want to zero in on one word in verse 9, they were shouting. They were shouting. To shout is to express emotion and passion indifferent to the opinions of those around you. The arrival of the king, his first arrival, and certainly his second arrival when he comes again, but his first arrival that we still live in the good of right now, we are still living in this moment when the arrival of Christ in peace, offering salvation is good news, ought to be a reason for rejoicing. Let me just address... A very dangerous cultural tendency that says that strong emotions are unhelpful and not cool. Not according to the Bible. And frankly, this is an area of weakness for us in our culture because we like coming across laid back and not overly affected by anything but a few small areas like sports. Yesterday, I was at a soccer game with my boys, and one of the boys on their team, their mom was sitting right next to me, and he kicked the goal, and she went crazy. And then she said, well, he's never scored a goal before. That's his first goal. He's played for years. He never scored a goal. And she screamed and shouted like only a mother can at a sports game. 
And it's great. It's a great. My mother did it, and it was embarrassing in the moment. Now I look back with gratefulness. It, it, it's a great thing. But why? Why was she shouting and making noise? Because she was so excited for him. Brothers and sisters, do we not have reason to rejoice that the judge of the world came in peace offering salvation? Don't you have reason to rejoice? Listen, we can't think of heaven and eternal security as this safety deposit box that we don't think about our whole life, but we know it's there if we ever needed it. We have a key somewhere in some drawer that it's somewhere there. I think if we ever needed it, it's there. No, this is a living Savior that ought to receive the shouts of affirmation of his people. This happens in corporate worship. It ought to happen in private. Listen, fathers, mothers, you ought to see your children growing if they are Christians in enthusiastic passion for the Lord. That ought to be your desire. You ought to be modeling that. An example. Look, it shouldn't be the case that our main goal is to be a laid-back Christian. Our main goal ought to be to look something like this. Now, I'm not saying all the time, like when you're at work going through spreadsheets, you just abruptly say, Hosanna, in the middle of the cubicle. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not recommending that, but I am saying that ought to be a regular part of your life, that the, the rejoicing at the arrival of the saving king ought to be descriptive of you as a Christian. Let, let, me, just, let me just address just the Sunday morning meeting. Brothers and sisters, there must be this kind of rejoicing and celebration coming out of you. Dads, it is your responsibility to model this for your family. I know it's not particularly masculine tendency and men like to be somber and everything. Yes, but you ought to be somber in a rejoicing kind of way. (laughs) Let me put it this way. You dare not be a silent brooding male when we are talking about the king coming to his city. You dare not be a silent, contemplative thinker when the moment is a moment of rejoicing. Look, when we get to heaven, there's no silent part in the choir. There's a lot of parts. None of them is the silent, somber part. They're all rejoicing parts. And we have different personalities. People might be more or less loud, more or less expressive. But not expressive is not okay. Brothers, sisters, we ought to be the most joyful people in the world. Because the king has come. And he has come not to conquer, but to die. Not to crush us, but to save us. Not on a war horse, but on a donkey. And that is a reason to express unbridled, pardon the pun, gratefulness. Unbridled gratefulness. Because this is our king. This is our king. The world looks for warriors, strong, powerful, or accommodating. I like my king. On a donkey, headed to a cross, dying for sinners, and rising again in glory. That ought to be a reason for rejoicing. Let me invite Reese and Dean to come back up. I'd like to sing, crown him with many crowns. And the goal of this exhortation was not just so that we could have a loud moment at the end. I'm looking ahead to these months, these years, as we move forward. And I want to encourage our church to grow in rejoicing in the glory of the King. 
Not just affirming him, but rejoicing in him. So let's pray that we would lay our lives at his feet and we would rejoice at his arrival coming to save us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you came not to condemn, but to rescue. Not to crush, but to lift up. And Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts with joy to lay our lives before you and to lift up our hearts in affectionate singing towards your glory. Receive the glory, Lord. What a king you are. What king is like you, humble and mounted on a donkey and going ultimately to a cross? What king is like you? And we rejoice in you this morning. Receive our song now as an expression of joining that chorus and saying, Hosanna, you are our king. We gladly crown you with many, many crowns. Let's stand and sing this together.